This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. James Comey, welcome to Better Reading. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. I mean, I've been following your career since the um, since the dismissal, if you like. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we call it that? Uh, and I like the firing. Ah, oh, the firing better. Okay, let's call it that. And I certainly um, have have read uh, your nonfiction work. But today we're talking about fiction, Cent- Central Park West. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. I never thought I'd be here, but I'm so excited and a little bit nervous to be here, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good book. I enjoyed it, and uh, I really liked the pace. It had a really, it, it punched, I think, really well. And the characters, I like the relationship between the characters. I particularly, for me, it was reminiscent of um, Case Scarpetta by Patricia Cornwall. Do you remember those mm. current fiction? Of course books? I do. And I lived in Richmond for many years where... Uh, Kay Scarpetta is a legendary figure because Patricia Cornwell got her start there. Mm, mm. I, I really, I feel that the characters were very similar. Okay, let me introduce you. Since graduating from the College of William and Mary in 1982 and the University of Chicago Law School in 1985, James Comey has been a prosecutor, defence lawyer, general counsel, teacher, writer and leader. I'm gathering you don't sleep very much. <laughs> no, I do. Oh, you I, do. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do any of that. Sleep is really important. (laughs) Well, you know, you'd certainly get a lot in. He most recently served in government as director of the FBI. His best-selling book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies and Leadership, was published in 2018, post the firing, and made into a a television um, series. His second book, Saving Justice, Truth, Transparency and Trust, also a New York Times bestseller, was published in 21. His latest novel, the one we're discussing today and the one we've already mentioned, Central Park West, is a gripping and fast-paced legal thriller inspired by Comey's long career in federal law enforcement, including his years in Manhattan as a mob prosecutor and later the chief federal prosecutor. Tell me about fear and your job. Like there must have been in those early days when you were prosecuting the mob, there must have been an element of fear. You know, the honest answer is not really, because right. the mob is a collection of cynical bullies, but they they tell themselves they have rules that they abide by. And one of them is they don't harm law enforcement. And that's not out of some sense of morality. It's out of a sense of practicality. The state is so large that if you did, they would crush you. And mm-hmm. so they really stayed away from threatening prosecutors and cops and investigators. The people I got threats from were the ones who were too stupid to know that if it wasn't me, it would be one of a thousand other people. And those tend to be outside of organized crime in the, in the sense that we know that term. Mm-mm. So as we said in the introduction, it's a stellar career. I mean, you have been working, I guess, in the law um, since you started working, really. 
And now you've moved to writing, firstly nonfiction and then fiction. I want to talk about that process because that's not an easy transition. Talk to me about the process of because, in a sense, tra- uh, when you're writing n- nonfiction, you're writing clearly what you know, right? Now with fiction, you are writing clearly what you know, but you are writing it through the eyes of different people. Yeah, I found it harder than nonfiction mm. and much more fun. Harder in the sense that, just as you said, it. What I'm doing in my nonfiction books is trying to accurately recount something that happened. And Mm -hmm. so there's a premium on getting it right, checking the sources, and then clear writing. In fiction, it is, I'm writing what I know. I know the world of mob trials. I know the world of New York and the FBI, but I'm making stuff up. And so the making up is hard to begin with, right? Imagination is forbidden in the nonfiction world and it's everything in the fiction world. And then once you've conceived of characters, Keeping them online, I found to be very difficult. Not letting them drift, not letting their tones converge. That's something my wife would spot in my writing. She'd say, you know, Benny is starting to sound like Nora. What are you doing? And then I'd have to go back and read it aloud and realize, yes, I've been drifting. Because they're not, I mean, they're people created from my experience, but they're not real. And so it was much harder in that sense, but much more fun because first you can make stuff up. If it doesn't work that someone is right-handed, you make them left-handed, but also just to be able to take the reader inside worlds I know, I didn't realize how much fun that would be and how much deeper I could take them through fiction. Mm. You know, you're right that you make stuff up with fiction. However, as a reader, for me, there has to be an element of truth. There has to be... You know, let, let's say we we're talking about sense of place and, and for you that was um, mainly the courtroom and your experience around, you know, your observations around those buildings, the physical really, and that rings true, you know, when, when somebody who has worked in that building or has used that, has been in that courtroom, that rings true. Sometimes I, as a reader, I don't buy into it because the sense of place doesn't ring true. So there has to be an element of truth, I think. I agree. Mm. I've tried to make this some of the realest fiction readers will encounter because I really wanted to show people what it's really like inside these Mm. places, these courtrooms, these conference rooms. And it was very exciting when I was there. I I don't need to make up storylines to generate excitement because I found it incredibly exciting. And also, in part, I'm writing for my family and friends who are a pain in the neck and love me. But... I don't want to make mistakes about mm-hmm. what the courtroom looks like or the procedure. And, you know, and and to capture the excitement that I felt, I actually went back at a number of occasions and went got the transcripts, court transcripts, out of the cases I had done so I could recount the dialogue exactly as it happened to me, to both because that's fun for me and also to make it as real as possible. I mean, I really did have one of the world's great art thieves as one of my witnesses against the mob. And he walked into a courtroom and took the witness stand and one of the mobsters mouthed to him in a way I couldn't see, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And I saw the witness change and some really exciting things happened thereafter. So I went back and got the transcript and I it's in the book the way it happened because that felt the, like the only way to take people inside of that. Uh, I really like that character. I love a mobster that likes art. I mean, that that for me, I'm like, is this real? But you're right. It, what he, it was Frenchie, wasn't it? And he was yeah, real. Yeah. My editor actually told me <laughs> one of Frenchie's jobs, he stole a Remington from a gallery on the Upper East Side of New York. And my editor, who 
I guess knows a bit about art said, yeah, that just seems unrealistic. And I said, well, it happened. It happened that way. And so I could change it. But mm-hmm. I, it would seem like to the memory of Frenchie, who was a real person, it wouldn't it wouldn't be right to change it because I can show you where that actually happened. And he laughed and said, OK, leave it the way it really was, even though this is fiction. And I liked how he chose. He only stole what he liked and didn't. steal. Yeah. <laughs> he used to say, so I don't steal crap. Taste. I don't steal crap. A lot of criminals don't know and they steal <laughs> crap. No, I, I know I don't take bad stuff. Mm. Now, for me, there was a real sense of family. There was a thread of family through the book, but there was also a, a, an observational thread of what. How can I describe it? Like the rug, in particular, the rug that was taken by the governor from his secretary. What was that? Was right, wasn't it, Georgine? Yes. Um, I really like those little details that I found quite unusual in a thriller. And is it that? that that's something that you notice? Do you look at decor? Do you look at art? Do you look at rugs? Is that something that is of particular interest to you? I'm no expert in any of that, but I, I've long tried to take in a scene, especially when I'm not having to talk, when I could just look around as I'm yeah. listening to people. And I think it goes back to, I we always had dinner at my family table. My parents were both there at dinner time and the four kids would sit at the table and we all have our roles in a family. And I was the storyteller. Mm. And so I would sit there having come home from a day of school and tell stories and to t- keep the attention of my siblings and my parents, it had to take them into inside the story. And so I would tell them what people were wearing, what the room was like, the scene and set it for them. And yeah. I think that's where that started. And it stuck with me. And look, to be a good investigator, and a good prosecutor, you have to notice because failing to notice is a, is a path to injustice. People uh, follow their confirmation bias down paths that lead to bad results. And so I've always disciplined myself, stay back, sweep it all in before you start reaching conclusions. So probably those two things and things I can't possibly know about myself led to that. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, I think you're right. It's setting the scene, but they were really, I really love them. They were very personal. Even with the criminals, there were so many personal elements that I I, can't, I really enjoyed that in your writing. I want to talk about storytelling and to go back, like you studied, you studied law. Was it that storytelling was always a part of your makeup? I just want to tell you during COVID, I read this in the, in the paper in the Sydney Morning Herald, during COVID where solicitors now had to go to court via Zoom or some kind of audio setup. I read a little piece in the news that said, and this is here in Sydney, that uh, they've brought in an acting school. Uh, I can't remember which one it was, (laughs) to really start training the solicitors and the QCs working on a different medium. And I found that hugely interesting and funny, that what are we doing here? Are our legal representatives actors as well? They have to be if they're going to be good at what they do. Mm. I think all good lawyering, even if you're not in a courtroom, is storytelling. It's it's taking a set of facts, distilling them, organizing them so that the most important are at the beginning, and then communicating them to a client or a tribunal in a way that holds interest and helps your side. And look, the problem with lawyers in general worldwide is that we're we fancy ourselves as people of substance. And so we look down at what we see as the tricks of communication, the, the 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 training of the theatrical. That's beneath us. No, it's not. If you're going to be good at what you do, you have to be able to write well and speak well and hold attention. I can remember being a law clerk for a federal judge in Manhattan 
which is the job in which I first decided I wanted to be a prosecutor, and reading stacks of briefs from elite law firms, and most of them were just terrible. And I remember one day I read one, and there was a particular sentence in it that was so good that I jumped up, ran into the judge's chambers, and said, you must read this. And I laid it out in front of him. So what happened in that in that case? I don't remember the result, but whoever hired that lawyer got special attention from a federal judge by virtue, not of the substance, but by the way in which they communicated. And so lawyers at their peril look down on the tricks of storytelling. Mm. Did you ever imagine that you'd be writing fiction? No. No. Was it something brewing at the back of, you know, your career and saying, oh, well, I'm doing this to have a career, to make money, but really I want to be a writer? No. I loved writing my whole life. I wrote fiction before I went to university, and then I got involved with journalism and spent a lot of time doing long-form journalism, writing weekly columns, writing editorials, and then got into law and law enforcement. And in law enforcement, I found it very, very hard to read crime or terrorism or espionage-related mm -hmm. fiction. And so it was really decades until the fire <laughs> that we started with that I got far enough away from the work that I would that I could read it and think about the idea. And the editor of my second nonfiction book just kept nudging me, saying, you write dialogue well, you write narrative well, you really ought to think about writing fiction. I kept saying no, but the farther I drifted from the work, the more I thought, yeah, give it a try. Mm -hmm. And then once I gave it a try, I found it addictive. I mean, one of the reasons I'm nervous is this is what I want to do when I grow up. I hope people like the book. I hope they buy the book because I've already written the second and I'd like to write a lot more. <laughs> Because it's hard and also because it's it's fun. Yeah, no, I think you're on your way. I think, you you know, this is a career path that will work for you. Also because of the millions and squillions of storylines you're going to have. I mean, you're backed by a career where, you know, there's a story in just about everything you did. So I want to go back to the firing. And for me, that's a marker in political history in the US of when things started to go let's say, pear-shaped. It really was the beginning of a political environment that is new to all of us. Would you agree with that? I think I would put that date, the, I like the term, the move to pear-shaped <laughs> earlier. I would actually start it when Donald Trump descended the so-called golden escalator and won the Republican nominee, nomination to be run for president of the United States because it was clear that he represented something not only different, but deeply threatening, not just to norms, but to our entire system. And so I would push it back a little way to that. But I, I get why people surely focused on it with the firing. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I was interviewing um, the, your wonderful writer, George Saunders, who I'm sure you know about. Um, he was in Sydney at the time that uh, Trump was elected, and I think he did some uh, work, uh, some journalism work around Trump. I think he followed him in the campaign. Anyway, he got elected and George Saunders was here, and I was lucky enough to speak with him. And I asked him, how does he see this playing out? How, how Where do we go from here? And he said he trusted the system, right? But that unfolded in a way that broke the system, I think, or is breaking the system. Because largely, I think that the system, let's say democracy in the US, is little more than a gentleman's agreement. And when you get somebody that's not a gentleman, it really doesn't work, does it? I have a less pessimistic view. I think the system has been sorely tested mm-hmm. and has until this to this point it has passed its stress tests and it will continue to I mean, think about the american legal system and its cultures like the australian legal system it has obviously rules and policies but also has a deep deep culture that was tested by the hurricane of lies that followed the 2020 election and it passed every test at the city level county level state level and federal level Republican judges, Democratic judges, it didn't matter. They all said, courtroom doors are open, bring your evidence, and heaven help you if you make a false statement in my courtroom. Mm. The culture of our legal system is so, sometimes it's frustrating because it changes so slowly, but it should be a consolation. It stood up to that and said, not only no, but hell no. And now we will seek legal sanctions against those of you who made false statements in our courtrooms. The American people, I don't think, see this clearly, but that's a shining example of the resilience and power of our institutions. Donald Trump being in a federal courtroom in Miami, being in a state courtroom in Manhattan, is that system on display, accountability on display, no matter what happens. And so I'm proud of the way that big part of our legal system stood up. I don't think our Our Congress covered itself in glory. I don't think our political party, especially the Republicans, covered themselves in glory. But I think a number of parts of our system, and I would would add the media, performed extraordinarily well during the period of the stress test, and the test is not over. Oh, it's definitely not over. So do you think that that characters like Trump, well, particularly, let's just say, you know, it is Trump, he seems to have start a war or start an argument, if you like, against any institution or person like yourself that doesn't agree with him, right? So what's the future then of the DOJ? What's the future then of, let's say, the FBI if he were to become president again? Because he's going to come back with uber confidence. He has long had a practice that anything he views as a threat, he preemptively tries to destroy. And so he saw me in our first encounter as a threat and the FBI as a threat. And he was right, because we're people who are interested in the facts and the law. We don't care about political loyalty or the rest of it. And as I've seen quoted someplace that Chris Christie, who weather veins a lot for a large man, but he was he was uh, one of Trump's advisors early on and advised him apparently to get rid of me, saying he'll do to you what he did to Hillary, meaning he'll make a decision without regard to politics. 
even if it hurts the the power in office in, in you. And so you ought to get rid of him. He's a threat. And so there's no doubt that's the way he approaches all threats. In the short run, that will do and is doing damage to the institutions of justice because it's making the FBI suspect in work you've never heard of, right? because mm-hmm. their work depends upon their ability to knock on a door and ask questions and make promises and have them trusted. And so that hurts all of us in ways we can't see. Donald Trump, if he's reelected, if he's elected president again, will do severe damage to those institutions in ways that he can, that he'll be smarter this time. And I can see ways in which he might do worse. I'd rather not say them out loud, but he will probably find them. And we'll still be okay in the long run because he can't be around forever. He is the demagogue the founders of America feared when they crafted this government, creating an extremely strong executive. You'd be fine as long as people were people of character. If you ever got the true demagogue, you'd have a real challenge on your hands. And that's what we're living through. It's not the challenge of a lifetime. It's the challenge of almost three centuries. It hasn't happened before. The good news about America is I love that quote that Lincoln was fond of. His secretary of state during the Civil War apparently told him, there's always just enough virtue to save America, but often none to spare. There's enough virtue to save America. I'm highly confident Donald Trump's not going to be elected president again because he hasn't expanded his voter pool in America. And the American people see the danger in a way they didn't, certainly didn't eight years ago. And And so I'm confident of that. But even if he's elected president, we'll weather this storm, too, because our institutions and our culture, especially the rule of law, just go too deep down into the earth's bedrock. Even though he stacked the judiciary? Yeah, because look what the look what those judges he appointed did to his lies about 2020. Yeah, they slammed him. And now they're sanctioning his lawyers. Bar associations are sanctioning his lawyers. Messages have been sent throughout our legal culture that it won't be tolerated. Why do so few people show up for his court appearances mm-hmm. in New York and Miami? Mm-hmm. I suspect it's a combination of two things. His his appeal is not what it once was, and they're afraid to misbehave because the United States government, its justice system, sent a message after January 6th, we will find you, we will hunt you down, mm-hmm. even for a misdemeanor, and we will hold you accountable. A thousand people have been jailed so far. So I I, I think those messages of deterrence are evidence of a strong legal culture and an enduring legal culture. So you don't think there's any chance that we'll have a president in jail? Oh, I think there's a non-zero chance of that. I don't know how high. (laughs) I think there's a significant chance we will have a former president in jail, a less significant chance that we'll have a candidate for president in jail. Very unlikely, but non-zero. So it's chilling even to say those words. Non-zero, but very small chance that we'll have a president elected from jail. Mm. If you wrote all this, by the way, in your next novel pitch, they would send it back. Oh, absolutely. I I mean, if I'd read the story, I wouldn't have believed it. (laughs) But look where we are. Okay. I want to ask you a question because I've asked a few people. I, I visit the United States once a year. I go and stay with friends in San Francisco. So I've always had an interest in the country. And one of the things that I've been doing it for about 20 years. And in the first couple of years that I was there, voter suppression came up and voting is compulsory here in Australia. And I found it really difficult to get my head around this, right? That we can, we have a system in the United States or you have a system in the United States where for some parties to get in power or to hold leadership, 
they have to stop people from voting. That just simply does not make sense to me. Yeah, I agree. There's many things I admire about Australia, and that's one of them. And we also schedule our elections on Tuesdays mm. when everyone has mm. to work. And so it's we make it inconvenient, we make it difficult. And and over the course of our history, both parties have been guilty of that. Whoever thinks it's to their advantage tries to discourage the other party's voters from voting. It doesn't make any sense to me. Voting ought to be, if not compulsory, it ought to be so easy. Mm. And it is, and we're moving to that in some states where it ought to be available by mail. I don't like online voting because... Mm. There's a there's great power in the uh, hairball that is the American election system. It's mostly analog, and that's there's safety in that from adversaries, foreign adversaries. But it ought to be as easy as possible, and it ought to be on a voting in person ought to be on a day off and all those kinds of things. But again, the challenge of our system is one party's always up, and then they see those changes as a threat to their upness, so they resist them until the other party's up and they feel the same way. Mm. No one does it better than the Republicans, though, in terms of suppression. Yeah, the Democrats used to, everyone forgets, the Democrats used to rule the American South mm. and were very, very good at keeping black people from voting. Mm. And that wasn't Republicans doing that, that was Democrats. And so it just ebbs and flows through our history, because <laughs> you know America well. We're both crazy mm. and mixed up and also at the same time kind of wonderful. And so we will muddle through. We will never get it. Right. But my goal, and I think it's our history and our as a country, is we always get it incrementally better. I think it's also population size as well. I mean, you know, it's easier to convince 25 million than 300 million. Yeah, right? maybe. The challenge of America is we're really not a country. We're 18,000 mm. towns and cities and counties. Mm. I found this in law enforcement. I wanted to push changes in how we approached police shootings in mm. the United States when I was FBI director. But to get that change done, I realized, and you know this as Australians, that it that the federal government is one of limited powers. And so mm. I couldn't order anybody to do anything, nor could the president. You had to convince them. And so convincing a country of that complexity to change is a tall order. Mm. Hey, now you said that um, voting is one of the things that you liked about Australia. Tell me some more. I'd like to hear those, <laughs> what you like I, about us. We had a uniquely close relationship with our Australian police and security colleagues. And I love the candor of Australians combined with a, a kindness mm. that sometimes is missing in my country. Mm. And I love my country and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But I found Australian colleagues, and maybe this isn't true outside of, of the people I dealt with, but the, they would tell me the truth, but tell it in a, in a way that I knew they weren't trying to tear into me. I found that really interesting and also exciting. I also like the irreverence of the Australian people. And maybe it's because I'm in the New York area. I like there's an irreverence there. Alexander Hamilton wrote about it back home when he first came to America. That's part of what I love about Australia. And I also love the physical beauty of your country. It reminds mm. me of the physical beauty of my country. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I always think um, when I'm in San Francisco or wherever I'm traveling in the United States, I often find a little bit of uh, a communication tension or whatever. I mean, it's mild, but I have to read between the lines sometimes when I'm talking to Americans. And then, because when you're talking to Australians, no, no, between the lines, it's just straight out there. They're going to say what they think and they're going to say it clearly. But they don't say it in a nasty way. I mean, that's no. what's so, sometimes the New Yorkers I grew up around will we'll give it to you straight, but 
they're giving it to you straight with the aim of punching you in the nose with it as well. And I never got that sense mm. from those com- those hard conversations with Australians. Mm. Now, tall poppy, where did you get that from? <laughs> I read it in a leadership book that I taught mm. my students at Columbia University mm. about the importance of culture and the enduring power of culture. And it was an example of a little known outside of Australia aspect of culture. And no one prescribes it. It's just the way it's done. Culture is best defined as the way things are really done, no matter what they tell you in training. So I saw it and it stuck with me. Mm. For those listening, I'll explain. I'm Australia. um, And I I think it's actually true. We have what's called the tall poppy syndrome. Whereas in the US, I I think Americans generally, from from my observation, is anybody can do anything. Whereas here, we like to keep people at a certain level. You know, it's not encouraged to actually stand out and sing your own praises. Would you say that? That was right. Yeah, that's right. Mm. It's sort of, I see it as sort of on a, on a, a middle ground between the Americans who are beating their chest. Everyone can do anything at any time. And the Brits, who I also admire, but are mm. much more hierarchical, that it's almost a sweet spot between the two. Mm. Okay. All right. Back to the book, Central Park West. So you're writing another. Is it going to be the same characters? What are we what are we looking at here from what's coming from James Comey? Crime novel with Nora Carlton, my mm-hmm. protagonist at the center of it. Benny Dugan also involved, but Nora's in a very different environment because I'd like to show readers a different place that I knew. And I worked for, before I went to the FBI for three years as the general counsel of the world's largest hedge fund in the New York metropolitan area. And I want to take readers in a fictionalized way inside that really interesting, sometimes weird world uh, with Nora at the center of the story. So I've done that and I have a few more friends to get feedback from that I'm going to give it to the publisher. Mm. Why did you choose a female protagonist? I chose a male protagonist to start with. And when it was blindingly obvious that that was the wrong choice, but maybe blind, so blindingly I was blind to it, I thought kind of I'll write a mini me. It won't be me, but it'll be my experiences. And then I, sounds like I'm making it up, but I was literally writing this in December of 2021 when my daughter was the chief of the Violent and Organized Crime Unit in the same U.S. Attorney's Office where I worked and where the story is set. And it's weirder than that. Because I prosecuted John and Joe Gambino, two New York mobsters, in courtroom 318 in the old federal courthouse when Maureen, my oldest, was a little girl. She was four. When I was writing this in December of 2021, she was in that same courtroom prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, who's Jeffrey Epstein's Mm -hmm. partner in abusing young girls. And my wife was going to the trial. I was not allowed because she said, if you go, Dad, quote, it'll be a thing, close quote. And I don't know what that means exactly, but I, I knew it meant to I come do. Dad. Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't go, but I got reports. And all of a sudden, it was just obvious to me, it has to be a woman. And it, it turned out to be such a stroke of luck because all of a sudden, I, I don't love to write about me. All of a sudden, I could write about mm-hmm. this woman that I love, my oldest girl, bring in parts of my other three daughters and write it through them as Nora Carlton. And that's how it became, that's how Nora came to be. And I laugh at myself saying, how did you miss that? I mean, why are we even contemplating the idea of a guy as your protagonist when your daughter is in the same? Anyhow, I got it straightened out and I got really good feedback from her on how to get that story right. 
Mm. It does. It rings true. It's and and I love the relationship, of course, between her and Benny. I really enjoyed that. Enjoyed the banter. Enjoyed the respect. Uh, it really worked for me as a partnership. Yeah, good because mm-hmm. it is. I obviously can picture my daughter and hear her voice and hear the other three girls' voices when I write Nora, but I could hear Benny too because he's based on my beloved friend Kenny McCabe, who died in two thousand six. And so I could hear him when I wrote it too and close my eyes and go there into that room. And that made it, that's what I meant by saying it's so much more fun than writing nonfiction. Mm. James Comey, we're out of time. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed our conversation very much. Same here. Thanks so much for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.